Have you ever been ghosted? They just stop calling, no explanation, no word. What if that person were your spouse? And what if they had your child with them? How do you even go on when the people you love most in the world just disappeared? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who panics and starts to plan the funeral if their partner is any more than 10 minutes late without calling. 20 years ago, a little boy's mother picks him up from school one Wednesday morning, and the two vanish. The mother is found a few days later, but little Timothy Pitson isn't with her, and no one knows where he is. On Wednesday, April 2nd, 2019, a young man ran across a bridge in Kentucky, pleading with passerbys for help. He was bruised and battered and extremely agitated. According to a witness who called 911, He just walked up to my car and he went, Can you help me? I just want to go home. Please help me. I asked him what's going on and he tells me he's been kidnapped and he's been traded through all these people and he just wanted to go home. His name, he said, was Timothy Pitson. Police called Timothy's father, James, to tell him they had possibly found his son. They were taking him to the children's hospital to get him checked out. One can only imagine the rush of emotions James felt receiving that phone call, hope surging through his body at the prospect of being reunited with his precious son, who'd gone missing almost exactly eight years earlier. On May 11, 2011, James Pitson dropped his six-year-old son, Timothy, off at kindergarten in their hometown of Aurora, Illinois. As he watched his son waddle away like a chubby old man, carrying his Spider-Man backpack, he called after him, I love you, be good. And already, I'm going to pause and say that when I read this, I got a little creeped out because every morning when I drop my eight-year-old off at school and watch him walk through the gate with his Spider-Man backpack, I call out, I love you, be kind. I mean, I guess that's not that much of a coincidence. Kids love Spider-Man, and telling your kids you love them when you drop them off at school is pretty par for the course. I guess what I mean to say is, I have a kid, and knowing the nightmare James was about to enter into, this story makes me want to crawl in bed and never come out. When James came to pick Timothy up later that day, he'd found he'd been picked up and signed out less than an hour after being dropped off. Clearly, this was a surprise to James. He asked who picked Timothy up. It was his wife, Timothy's mother, Amy. James called Amy. She didn't answer. He called again. No answer. He left her a message. I said, just tell me that you're fine. Just call me. What's going on? I had no idea where they were. I called her mom. I called her dad to see if she'd been there. I was like, okay. She's upset at me for some reason, so she'll need to cool down. Apparently, a few weeks earlier, James and Amy had gotten into a fight over Amy wanting to go to the Bahamas with a girlfriend. James was upset that he and Timothy weren't going, and normally I would tell a dude to back off and let his wife have some alone time, but in all fairness, James had cause to be peeved. A few years earlier, he had found out that Amy was communicating with and seeing one of her ex-husbands, and possibly planning to have an affair. James put the kibosh on the secret relationship and told Amy that if she wanted to go down that route with anyone else, she could, but he would make sure to get full custody of Timothy. And 
Given Amy's history with mental illness, it looks like he would have had a strong case. It's one more awful irony to parenting while depressed. On top of the depression, you're also burdened with the knowledge that your illness could cost you your custody. So James thought Amy might still have been angry about the fight over the vacation, even though the vacation had already passed and she had gotten her way and went with just her girlfriend. I'm sure James was just trying to cling to anything semi-logical to avoid thinking the worst. But when James discovered that his wife had left without her antidepressants and, it seemed, without having taken her meds for at least a few days, he got really worried and called the police. And, of course, by this point, nothing Amy had done was illegal. Inconsiderate? Sure. Concerning? Absolutely. But not illegal. The police told James they would have to wait at least another 24 hours before filing a missing persons report. And, as frustrating as this is, it makes sense. So, James waited out the night, hoping his wife would call in the morning, explaining that she just needed some space to think, at which point he might firmly suggest that next time she needed space to not abscond with their child without letting him know first. But Amy didn't call in the morning. James let the rest of the family know that Amy and Timothy had not been seen since 8.30 the morning before, and he continued to call Amy's cell phone. She didn't answer his calls. The police, for some reason, showed up at James' work the next day, and they said they would file a missing persons report. And to me, this is really strange. Why did they just show up at his work? Why didn't they call? Why did they take it upon themselves to follow up? Anyone who's ever seen a movie about a child going missing knows that half the movie is taken up with the parent yelling at the police to do something, damn it! The Aurora PD was either extremely proactive or really bored. A day went by with no word from Amy. I can only imagine that James spent this day pulling his hair out and vomiting, as that is literally 100% what I would have done. The next day, March 13th, Amy called her mother and told her she and Timothy were fine, and according to James, that she, quote, needed some time alone to figure out how to approach this. Approach what? I mean, I would have been driving all over Illinois at this point with a bullhorn. What did she need to figure out how to approach? She then called James' brother and said, quote, Timothy's fine. Timothy belongs to me. Um, what? James' brother could hear Timothy in the background of the call, apparently sounding fine, so at least there was that. But here's the thing. Amy had already survived at least two suicide attempts before in her life, and James said she was battling demons, and the demons were winning. I'm sure we're all aware by now of parents with suicidal ideation taking their children out with them because they think they're saving them. And from all accounts, Amy really had struggled with major depression for years. She was on three medications to manage it. Her sister Kara described her as always searching for the thing that would make her happy. Work, religion, family. Her first husband had introduced her to Mormonism, something Amy hoped would help her. And though it didn't seem to, and her first marriage ended in divorce, Amy apparently remained a Mormon throughout the rest of her life. Timothy had provided a short respite from her relentless pain, and she finally felt as though she had found her purpose in life, which was to be Timothy's mother. 
But as is usually the case with serious chronic depression, Amy's depression returned, and with it, I'm sure, added disappointment and guilt that her role as a mother was no longer saving her life. Given how intimate James was with Amy's mental health struggles, it's hard to imagine the panic he must have been feeling at this point. The next morning on May 14th, the police called James. A housekeeper discovered Amy's body in a hotel room at the Rockford Inn in Rockford, Illinois. The only good news was that Timothy wasn't there. The bad news, of course, was that Timothy wasn't there. In her suicide note, Amy said that Timothy was safe with people who loved him somewhere he would never be found. Immediately, an extensive search for Timothy began. With the devastating news that Amy was gone, the family prayed that they would find him and find him alive. But first, they would have to try to put together the pieces of Amy and Timothy's last few days together. Combing through debit and credit card activity, cell phone pings and CCTV footage, the police began to put together a timeline retracing Amy and Timothy's steps from the morning of May 11th when she checked him out of school, leading up to the morning of May 14th. After Amy and Timothy can be seen on CCTV footage leaving Timothy's school on the 11th, Amy dropped her car off at a repair shop, and the two got a ride from an employee of the repair shop to a local zoo, where they spent some time before returning to pick up the car around 3 p.m. From there, Amy took Timothy about an hour and a half north to the Key Lime Cove Water Park Resort in Gurney, Illinois, where they spent the night. The next day, they drove another two and a half hours north to the Kalahari Water Park and Resort in Wisconsin Dells, stopping along the way to buy Timothy new clothes, a toy car, and a small craft kit. On the morning of the 13th, CCTV footage shows Amy and Timothy checking out of the Kalahari Water Park Resort around 10 a.m. Timothy looks like any other kid. He's clearly not in distress. He doesn't look like a kid who's been coerced or threatened. At one point, he's playing with a toy truck on the floor of the lobby. Everything looks perfectly normal. As Amy heads back to Illinois, she calls loved ones, but again, not James, and says everything is fine. Timothy can be heard in the background saying he's hungry, but from all accounts, just like regular kid hungry, not like she was starving him. If it hadn't been for the fact that Amy would be found dead in a hotel room the next morning, with Timothy nowhere to be found, it would sound like this was just an impromptu trip to the zoo and some water parks. Nothing to worry about. Except, of course, for the marital discord and her not taking her meds. But the next time Amy was spotted on security footage was at a Dollar Tree at 7.25 that evening. She bought stationery. She was alone. At 8 p.m., she made a stop at a grocery store and then checked into the Rockford Inn by 11.30 p.m. Alone. It was the next morning on the 14th, around 12.30 p.m., that the housekeeper had the terrible misfortune of finding Amy's body in the hotel room. I'm not going to go into detail about how Amy killed herself. Suffice to say, it was thorough. If she had attempted and failed at killing herself before, she clearly was going to make sure she got it right this time. Amy left a note on the stationery she had bought the night before that James paraphrased in interviews. She apologized for the mess she created and that Timothy was safe with people who loved him and he would never be found. 
safe with people who loved him and would never be found. Some people seem to think the mess she refers to is the physical one she would have left as a result of killing herself. Others think she might have meant the mess of living with the suicide of a loved one and the disappearance of Timothy. I would guess she might have meant a little of both. It's hard to say without seeing the actual note. She then mailed another note to her mother and another to her friend. The note to her mother read, Mom, I know you are hurt and frustrated, and I wish I had something better to say than I love you, but I don't. I have never really felt like I belonged here. I have tried very hard to fit in, to be happy, to be good to those around me, but somehow I've always felt apart from everything. Tim helped with that for a while, and maybe if Jim and I had been better, I would have been okay, but everything just fell apart, and this time there were just too many pieces for me to pick up again. I can't take the chance of Jim hurting Tim because of my choices, so I've taken him somewhere safe. He will be well cared for, and he says that he loves you. Please know there is nothing you could have said or done that would have changed my mind. I'm sorry for the hurt and difficulties I know you are going to face. I just hope you will be able to forgive me one day. Please let Brian, Kathy, Natalie, Adam, Kara, Sydney, and Phoebe know that I do love them. It was just time for me to say goodbye. I love you, Mom. Amy. The note to her friend echoes the note she left at the hotel. What's especially interesting is that she didn't include a note for James. Look, it's impossible for anyone to know what truly goes on inside a relationship other than the people in the relationship. And all we really have is James' word. And it's possible that he downplayed the troubles they were having in their marriage in the weeks and months leading up to these fateful few days in May 2011. Whatever the truth may be, Amy was clearly unhappy in the relationship and, for some reason, it seems, didn't trust James. It's odd that she would worry that James would hurt Timothy because of her actions. According to all accounts, there were no reports of child abuse or domestic violence in the relationship. Of course, that doesn't mean there wasn't any happening, but usually when a child goes missing, there's a lot of digging into the family and home life that happens, and there doesn't seem to be any indication that James might have hurt Timothy or Amy before. However, police did find dried blood inside Amy's car, and when it was tested, it was found to be Timothy's. This raised some alarm bells, of course, but according to several family members, the blood had come from a bad nosebleed Timothy had had a few weeks prior to going missing. And again, from all accounts, it didn't seem to be a nosebleed as a result of violence. Some kids bleed from their noses a lot. Don't ask me why, I don't know, and I don't care. All I know is my son, thank the baby Jesus, does not randomly bleed from his nose. Lord help me, I would not be the right parent for that kind of kid. I suppose it's possible that the nosebleed excuse is just that, an excuse, and that maybe there was a history of child abuse in the family, but honestly, it seems to me someone would have picked up on something at some point. As far as everyone was concerned, Timothy was a happy, healthy, well-adjusted kid. No red flags. So, again, the fact that Amy didn't leave a note for her husband is telling. I don't know what it's telling. Maybe just that Amy's depression had gotten so bad that it clouded her perception of her relationship with James? 
that whatever demons she was battling, they had successfully convinced her that James was not on her side. Depression has a way of painting a gray pall over otherwise colorful things. So where was Timothy? All of his things were missing, and there seemed to be not a trace of him to be found. In addition to the blood police found in Amy's car, they also found evidence that she had recently driven the car off-road into a field or meadow. Grass and plants stuck to the underside of her car, as well as a cell phone tower ping from the last call placed from Amy's cell phone, led investigators to believe Amy had pulled off into an uncultivated field in Lee County or Whiteside County in northwestern Illinois, or in Carroll, Ogle, Stevenson, or Winnebago counties. And in fact, after checking Amy's toll records, they found she had made two trips up to the same area within four months of her suicide. Both trips had been round trip within a day, spending only an hour or so before turning around and heading back to Aurora. One on February 18th and the other on March 20th. She hadn't told James about these trips. So what was she doing? Was Amy scouting places to bury a small body? Or was she visiting someone else who may know where Timothy was? On May 19th, five days after Amy was found in the hotel room in Rockford, and six days after anyone had seen Timothy or heard his voice, 70 people searched over two dozen sites looking for any sign of the boy. Cadaver dogs were brought in, but nothing was found. And a really sad but optimistic statistic about mother-child-murder-suicides is that usually if a mother is going to kill herself and murder her child, she does both back-to-back in the same place. It's extremely rare that a mother would kill her child, hide the body, and then hours later kill herself. So it's unlikely that Amy killed Timothy. Unless, of course, she hadn't planned on killing herself, but was so consumed by the guilt of having killed her son that she killed herself later that day at the motel? On June 14th, after a month of searching, police admitted to having no leads or clues. They had not gotten any closer to finding Timothy. If Amy had done the unthinkable and killed her son, she had done a remarkably good job of hiding his body. And considering there was no shovel or dirt found in Amy's car or hotel room indicating Amy might have buried a body, it's very hard to imagine where she might have been able to so thoroughly hide the body of her child. Which leads most people to believe that Amy was telling the truth in her suicide note, that Timothy really was alive and safe somewhere. But where and with whom could a missing child who had received national attention have disappeared? In an interview with CNN, James said, I always wonder what she told Timothy. Why hasn't he tried to call? We taught him how to dial 911. This is your number, this is your mom's number. You know, where you live, your address, all the stuff you do. We got one of those little uh, identicards for kids with his fingerprint, his name, and a picture of him. So if he got lost somewhere, you could find him. That card was one of the only things of Timothy's in Amy's hotel room where she was found dead. 
The predominant theory seems to be, at least according to armchair detectives, that Amy gave Timothy to an Amish family, simply because there are quite a few Amish communities in the area Amy and Timothy traveled, and because the Amish are known to be cut off from the modern world. If someone wanted to disappear, they might find the Amish a welcoming place to do just that. This theory has been batted down, but never fully debunked. There is some debate online that the Amish are not quite as cut off from the rest of the world as we're normally led to believe. People who make this argument say that the truth would eventually come out if he had indeed been left with the Amish. Or that they wouldn't have taken him in in the first place because of the Amish's purported mistrust of non-Amish people. But I'd like to push back on that idea. The Amish are notoriously secretive and very cut off from the rest of the world. If you've been following the news closely, you've seen reports leaking out here and there of atrocious abuses against Amish girls and women that have gone largely unnoticed because of how secluded and isolated the Amish keep themselves. The Amish do adopt children, though usually from other countries. And in 2011, in Pennsylvania, an investigation found that there was an illegal program in which Mennonite families were fostering the children of local incarcerated mothers with no government oversight or restrictions. Mennonites, for those of you who are unfamiliar, live very similarly to the Amish. According to one report, of the 91 children taken in by the Mennonites, 49 were returned to their mothers upon release from prison, and 11 were adopted by their Mennonite families. Another report put the number of children who remained with the Mennonites at 29. Without an official paperwork trail or any oversight from any authoritative agency, it's hard to say how many there actually were and what happened to them. If someone were to come to an Amish family with a story about, say, their child being in danger, I'm sure that family would consider it their godly duty to take that child in. After all, it's one more person who'll grow up Amish. What if Amy found an Amish community and weaved a tale that pulled on their sense of moral obligation? What if she convinced a family that she was dying and was afraid her son's father would hurt her son after she was gone? Who knows? If that is what happened, Timothy could have easily disappeared into an Amish community. I don't want to imply that the Amish are a cult. I'll just say that they're a relatively small Orthodox religious group that mistrusts and keeps themselves cut off from mainstream society. One in which girls can't go to school beyond eighth grade and women are expected to make as many children as possible in order to increase their numbers. To me, this theory is not so far-flung. And what can anyone do? Go door-to-door in all the Amish communities in that part of Illinois and look for Timothy? Even if they could, there's a good chance he would have moved to another community farther away. All I'm saying is, stranger things have happened. Another theory I haven't seen posited anywhere is that Amy found a Mormon family and left Timothy with them. It's strange, after all, that Amy remained Mormon after divorcing her first husband and was even buried in a Mormon cemetery, but from everything I've seen, James wasn't Mormon and neither was Timothy. 
I don't have a vast understanding of the Mormon faith, and I know that all religions have varying degrees of orthodoxy, but I thought Mormons generally frowned upon people marrying outside the religion. How would Amy expect to have her forever family on their own planet, that she and James would populate with more Mormons, if James wasn't Mormon? Then again, maybe her failure to marry a fellow Mormon and raise their child in the church contributed to her depression. Those are very high expectations. To me, it's not outside the realm of possibility that Amy met or knew a Mormon family whom she convinced to save Timothy's soul by taking him in and baptizing him. I don't mean to single out the Mormons or the Amish. I think anyone who believes enough in the doctrine of their religion might consider something like a child showing up on their doorstep needing saving a gift from God. One person's kidnapping is another person's soul-saving. But again, it makes you wonder if Amy had real cause to be so afraid of what James might do, or if depression had so clouded up her judgment that she really couldn't tell up from down at that point. As someone who has suffered from depression for most of their life, I can attest that depression is a liar. And when you're in the depths of despair, sometimes the worst choice seems like the only choice. Year after year, with no word from Timothy, James and the family still hold out hope that Timothy will return. Whether the people who have him will grow a conscience and help him reunite with his father, or he'll manage to extract himself and find his way home. And then, in April of 2019, their hope was sparked when a young man emerged bruised and battered on a bridge in Kentucky, claiming that he was Timothy Pitson. Police called James Pitson to tell him the news. James and the family waited as police took Timothy to the hospital to get checked out. The boy refused to let them take his fingerprints, but agreed to a DNA test. Did you know you could refuse to let the police fingerprint you? I didn't. According to a piece in the New York Times, he told the authorities that he had escaped from a hotel room where two men had been holding him captive for ages. He said that he'd been physically and sexually abused. But right away, something didn't seem right to the police. First, there was the five o'clock shadow on the young man's face. And while it's not unheard of for a kid to mature quickly enough to grow facial hair by 14, it's not the most common thing. But it wasn't just the beard. The guy looked 14 as much as Ben Platt looked 16 in the Dear Evan Hansen movie. You know what I mean? Like, you can put a wig on it all day, but you're not fooling anyone. And then the DNA test came back. Surprise, surprise, he was not 14-year-old Timothy Pitson. He was 23-year-old Brian Reaney, who had just served 14 months of an 18-month stint at Belmont Correctional Institution for vandalism and burglary. And this was not Reaney's first time pretending to be a victim of sex trafficking. He had apparently made this claim twice before. There's not a lot of information out there about why or how the police determined he was lying, but for some reason, this guy really wanted people to think he'd been sex trafficked. This fucking guy. There's also not a lot of information about why Reaney pretended to be Timothy Pitson. Like, he had to have known he would be caught, right? He wouldn't agree to get fingerprinted, but he had to have known they would do a DNA test, right? Like, what was the end goal here? Was he trying to go back to prison? If so, 
Good job, Bob. You did it. But in so doing, he dragged James and his family through the torture of thinking their beloved Timothy was coming home to them, only to find out it was just some harebrained narcissist who apparently either really likes attention or being in jail. I assume the family lives every day with the hope that Timothy will eventually come home. Someone will spot him somewhere, or he'll eventually break out of whatever mind fuckery the family who has him has put him in and reach out to his father. Stranger things have happened. In 2012, Saru Brierly found his family in India after 25 years apart. He'd gotten separated from his brother at a train station and was picked up by authorities, sent to an orphanage, and adopted by an Australian couple. And just this past July, a man in China found his son who'd been kidnapped 24 years earlier when he was only two years old. For now, all Timothy's family can do is just try to go on, clinging to the hope that the next time the phone rings, it's the news they've been praying for since that awful day in May 2011. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. Among all the twists and turns of the JFK conspiracy, there remains one elusive figure who may or may not have taken film that would give us definitive answers. But no one's been able to track her down. Or have they? The Babushka Lady. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our voice actors for this episode were Lauren Hooper and Luther Creek. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 